Buongiorno, and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy and international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Techum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. On today's episode of The Global Podcast, we're going to look at the economies of both Italy and Greece, both pre- and post-COVID-19, and understand what the effects of COVID-19 will have on both countries economically and regarding a sustainable development aspect as well, touching the occasional politics here and there, while also trying to understand the potential for economic growth in what appears to be quite a dismal outlook. Or is it? That's what today's discussion will allow us to understand. Joining us on the episode are Alexandra Fatal to discuss Italy and Nick Malkutsis to discuss Greece. Alexandra Fatal was The Economist's Milan correspondent for six years, covering Italian business and finance. Before that, she was based in London as online editor for the Middle East and Africa and worked for the paper in New York. She previously worked for The Economist's intelligence unit and for the European Parliament in Brussels. Alexandra is now a consultant for companies in Italy and the United Kingdom. Nick Malkutsis is the editor and co-founder of Macropolis, an independent political and economic analysis service based in Athens. Nick and his team have been providing daily coverage of the developments in Greece, as well as compiling bespoke reports for clients since 2013. Nick has also written about Greece for the Journal of British Academy, the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, and numerous other international media outlets, while also being the host of the Agora podcast, which examines issues related to Greece in an effort to examine its place in Europe and within the global context. So do subscribe to that while you also subscribe to our lovely number. So, Alexandra and Nick, welcome to the Global Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. An absolute pleasure, as always. And also a courtesy announcement to all of our listeners. I am still in uh, Casablanca. So if you hear the background noise, do realize that is from my lovely house based here in the lovely, very lovely neighborhood of Anfa. So do forgive that. I hope it gives you serenity and some imagination as you listen in to some important topics. Now... Uh, For those who are not aware, Italy was the worst hit by the pandemic. And particularly when the pandemic arrived, Italy wasn't particularly in the most magical state uh, when it came to its economy. So I want to take this outlook looking at Italy and Greece, considering its economy and starting first of Italy. So, Alexandra, let's start with you diving into my own country. Um, What was Italy's economy like pre-COVID? I understand it was a bit of the the thorn in the the European project's uh, side, but could you give us a brief overview of that? Sure. So, um, you know, Italy was still still recovering from from the previous uh, shock of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and so it's gone through years of, of stagnation, um, which has meant that the that when the crisis hits now, um, 
it it uh, it it was a particularly severe shock. Um, you know, it has uh, Italy has many businesses in some of the hardest hit sectors, uh, such as manufacturing and tourism. Its economy is predominantly made up of small and medium-sized businesses um, with less capacity than big firms to withstand financial shocks. Um, poverty has been increasing uh, significantly, you know, since the last financial crisis. It peaked in 2018 at 5 million um, in its population of 60 million. Um, and, you know, last year it was just beginning to decrease. And um, this, this crisis is is likely to, um, uh, to, to, you know, it's estimated that now over a million more people have fallen into poverty since COVID. Um, there's also, you know, a big north-south divide, um, which was again exacerbated after 2008, and, um, and this is likely to, to exacerbate that further. Precisely, and, and I can definitely say that from a personal um, and a business level on that aspect, particularly when one compares how the lockdown has affected uh, particularly the South on that on that part. But were there any indicators that Italy, apart from the fact last year there was an indicator that the economy slightly emerged, but were there any hopeful streak that was coming from the pre-COVID era that seems to have now uh, thrown that into the wind uh, for the Italian economy? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, growth growth had been picking up the last few years. Um, the uh, Milan Expo in 2015 gave a big impetus to, to Milan um, and and to the to, to the to the wider country, but particularly there. Um, so, you know, it, it had been slightly more hopeful um, that despite everything. Um, and then, you know, since since COVID's hit, GDP fell. Uh, nearly 5% in the first quarter, which was the largest quarterly de- quarterly decline in 25 years. And um, the the estimates for for this year could be a fall in GDP of um, 10 or 15%, depending on, on different forecasts. And um, one study is suggesting that company profits will be down 35% this year. And it'll take till 2022 to return to um, last year's levels. So, so it's continuing to look rather dismal on that aspect. So it seems that it's just getting towards a more darker hole, if you think about it, given the from what it was pre-COVID already. Yeah. Going real quick in considering Greece, because while Italy, as Alexandra had indicated, was not in the particular best of light going in, though there was some minute aspects of growth. Um, I understand that Greece was actually... Uh, doing relatively better and they really seem to be picking themselves up slowly despite the 2008 recession really being the punch in the gut in the stomach um nick could you give us the the greek perspective how was greece pre-covid well i think relatively is the key word there uh, as you mentioned since um more than a decade ago, Greece had been in deep financial trouble. Uh, it was uh, it had the first of its three bailouts in 2010, uh, bailouts that did save it from going uh, uh, defaulting on its debt, but at the same time, which came with a huge amount of austerity. And this this combination of this very tight fiscal adjustment and deteriorating economic uh, conditions meant that around 25% of GDP uh, in Greece disappeared between 2010 and the the end of the third and final bailout uh, just uh, a couple of years ago. Now, since the third bailout ended uh, in uh, 2018, 
the Greek economy had been recovering when we were back to getting some kind of growth. Uh, sort of between around two to two and a half uh, percent, and that was where it was sort of projected to go over the next few years, which was obviously much better than where we'd been in the the previous years and coming out of that sort of darkness of the economic uh, crisis or the debt crisis it was known uh, throughout the eurozone but not really enough for greece given where we'd been again because over that course of time i described greece you know about a million jobs disappeared in Greece. And when you consider that the country's uh, labor force is around 4 million people, that's that's a big, big blow. And it was felt throughout uh, society. But nevertheless, these sort of baby steps were taking place over the last uh, few years. And uh, last summer, we had a, a, a change of government with a new center-right government coming in and promising tax cuts and all kinds of other economic reforms to get this growth rate up to around 4%. Of course, all that's gone out the window for the time being. And where we are at the moment is that Greece is expected to take, like all other European economies, a big hit this year. But the fact that the Greek economy is so reliant on tourism means that uh, the recession in Greece may end up being a lot bigger than many other European countries. Uh, tourism accounts for somewhere between 10 to 30 percent of the Greek economy, depending on whether you're counting the direct or indirect uh, impact. And even though Greece, as you intimated, you know, handled the public health challenge of uh, COVID-19 pretty well, and is now, as we speak, reopening to tourists, no one in the industry really expects it to be anywhere near uh, a decent year. I mean, the, 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 even the most optimistic forecasts are for less than half the revenues that uh, came in last year. And that's going to be a huge, huge hit for Greece. At the same time, another key industry, the shipping industry, has also been hit because of the decline in uh, global trade. So it's going to be a difficult year for Greece. And just to give you an idea, in its recent spring forecast, the European Commission uh, forecasted that the Greek economy would contract by 9.7% this year. And that was the largest for any of the European uh, Union countries. Of course, there is hope that through the economic support measures, the stimulus measures announced by the government, as well as the, the EU stepping in through the ECB's bond buying scheme and also this recovery and resilience fund that's in the works, that a lot of that might be mitigated. And the Greek government itself is hoping that the contraction will be no bigger than 8%. But it's safe to say, you know, that the, 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 the little momentum that had built up over the last two or three years has now disappeared. And uh, we've got a new challenge ahead of us. Precisely, a new challenge ahead. And it's also allowing one to think in regards to where is Greece and and Italy going in this aspect. But taking a look real quick on Greece in regards to how it handled COVID. Greece and Italy handle it in both different ways. But Greece is notorious for having kept the numbers low, despite its own health system being quite overwhelmed. Was there any particular recipe for the Greek success story? Or was it simply because they just, had the, they just responded to it swiftly? It's a, it's an interesting one. I, I think the the swiftness of the response uh, is is one of the key issues. Now, 
we have to really qualify that and say, and you know, especially if we're talking in comparison to Italy, you know, we were several weeks behind Italy, and we could see what was going on there and try to formulate a plan and obviously become very concerned about what was going on there and that really sort of concentrated a lot of minds so i have to say in you know in a, in a very sort of unpleasant way we we benefited from what was going on in italy at least in a sort of decision making capacity so the you know the greek government decided that it would locked down early around mid-March uh, and as I said Greece was then a few weeks um, behind Italy and that it would be a, a pretty strict uh, lockdown as well uh, so that certainly helped and I think now we are starting to see uh, you know other governments realize the value of uh, the lockdown you know closing down schools shutting playgrounds shutting parks uh, getting people to work from home only allowing them to go out if they had filled in either an electronic uh, form or, or a handwritten form of police checks and so on and so forth that that's all being phased out now um i think that was that was definitely one thing the other the other key element here and it has to do with what we were seeing from italy was was to put it very bluntly fear uh i think fear on a policy making level and as you mentioned the the, the greek prime minister and the people around him uh, and anyone really in the political class were very aware that greece had the weakest public health system in the European Union as, as a result of years of uh, low funding, cuts, doctors leaving, nurses leaving. We had a real shortage of nurses as well as uh, beds. And this was partly the result of, you know, the austerity policies we mentioned earlier, but also a result of mismanagement, a result of, you know, human resourcings being lost because of the crisis, doctors going abroad and so on. So. You know, the, 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 the Prime Minister knew very well that the Greek public health system could not cope with any surge in, in cases. And having seen what happened in northern Italy, where the public health system is, you know, famed to be much, much stronger than most, uh, most places in Europe, this really, like I said before, concentrated decision makers' mind. But fear was also important, I think, in getting the Greek public to buy into this early and strict lockdown. Uh, you know, we watched on our television screens every day what was going on in Italy, and I think people were horrified by that. And at the same time, they knew either because they themselves had used it or relatives or friends had used it that the Greek public health system uh, w would struggle under the, you know, the slightest bit of pressure. So this fear, I think, kept people at home, kept people uh, obedient and they bought into this whole idea of uh, the lockdown and lastly and I think this is important to mention uh, because this was a bit of a departure for Greece was that the Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis he decided to appoint an epidemiologist to head the whole operation in terms of the public health response, into, including the lockdown measures, there was obviously, a, you know, a scientific committee behind it, 
But the guy he put in charge, Sotiris Chodras, a really respected figure, someone who took part in the daily briefings, became really liked and respected by the Greek public and spoke about the disease, you know, in human terms, in terms of protecting the elderly, in terms of protecting the young, in terms of looking after lives. And this really tapped into the, the Greek psyche. And the the other important aspect of this was that Mitsotakis decided to give him the space to do the job. Now, Greece and perhaps Italy is similar in this respect. Often the type of people who get appointed to these positions, uh, you know, win their places because of political affiliations. And then, you know, once they're appointed there, there is political, constant political inf- interference in what they do. This wasn't the case in Greece, and it was a bit of a departure from what has happened before, and I think it's probably one of the real gains that we have going forward. You know, pick an expert, not because of his political affiliations, trust his expertise and that of the people around him, and give him the space to do the job. How unique, hiring somebody who's competent. (laughs) I think that could be really good food for thought no matter where you go. Going to the other side of the Mediterranean, and thank you for that input, Nick, going back into Italy... Um, you know, it, it is, we all have seen the images of Italy being slammed, and I think the images of Bergamo are particularly still most poignant with the military trucks. It's no stranger that Italy suffered massively during COVID-19, and of course, not only became an example for Greece, but even for New York and other countries on how to handle this pandemic. But now, la quarantena sta per finire, as everybody's saying in Italy, the quarantine is now coming to a close. But while it seems life can be joyful now because there's sun and we can, and everybody can breathe and have a coffee in the morning, what is it really going to look like for Italy and considering Italian business going forward? Nick had highlighted for Greece it's going to be a dark year. Do you think that's going to be the case, Alexandra, for Italy in that aspect, or is there something up the sleeve? I mean, I, I think it's going to be very very challenging. Certainly, um, you know, similarly with the the hit to tourism and you know a lot of businesses which had to close during the quarantine time and now theoretically can open but may not you know uh, may not have been able to resist this time and may not actually end up opening so you know we still have to wait and see what will happen on that there's been a lot of a lot of companies um in casa d'integrazione which is the furlough system in italy which um you know that that's existed pre-covid but obviously has been used a lot more now and has, has been a very slow process and a lot of people haven't gotten the money that um that they were supposed to um so i think it's going to be very difficult i think you know there are a few um you know po- possible bright spots to to cling to which is that um COVID has accelerated certain trends and that you know we've seen that generally across the world but italy particularly lagged um you know, the, like other Western economies in terms of digital. Um, and that's that's a big problem. Um, but this, the coronavirus has, has forced people online. So, you know, one anecdote I like was that I, I, I was watching a webinar with Diego Piacentini, who was a senior executive at Amazon and then was helping the Italian government for a couple of years to digitize their, their systems. Um, and he was saying that when he arrived at Palazzo Chigi, the government's headquarters in Rome, he wanted to use a video conferencing system. This was before Zoom, but it was like a similar platform. And um, he said everyone looked at him like he was crazy and he had to use his personal credit card to pay for the program. And anytime he suggested uh, using this with other people in Rome, because it can take so long to get from one side of the city 
to the other. Again, everyone thought he was crazy. So um, this has at least like forced people a bit more into um, into like modern times. You know, the that there was a lot of talk for a long time about you know smart working and working from home, but there was a, a lot of reluctance on the behalf of firms to actually do this. You know, um, pre-COVID, um, around. One percent of personnel actually work from home. In between March and April, this rose to nearly nine percent. It's now gone down to around five, but so it's low. But it's like it's a big increase in a short period of time that can help to to boost um, Italy's kind of general view towards uh, coming online and digital. You know, e-commerce was also very uh, underdeveloped. It's still low, but again, it's accelerated over the over the last few months. Um, similarly with um, mobile payments, whether that's in-store or online. You know, Italy is a country in which cash is king. There's a lot of informal work. There are still people who are unbanked. So this, you know, will should like slowly, slowly help help on that front. And hopefully really um, launch Italy in that sense on on becoming more modern because, you know, as you know, in Italy, there's always a saying, Italy, we always have our head looked to the past, but we're never really properly looking forward, which is yeah. strange because we're a country of, uh, of, of so much innovation in that aspect. Yet thinking about this, given that COVID has pushed Italy to finally face the music when it comes to, you know, the internet is here and it's now, um, what are the opportunities that are present for Italy in that aspect for, for business to come into? And how can the government perhaps respond to facilities that because sometimes they say where well, there's a crisis there's an opportunity clearly there are opportunities in Italy what are those key ones that you've particularly noticed from the business sense and how can the government support that in order to help foster greater economic growth where possible well I mean I think there's there are still signs that there's investor appetite there was um, a recent investor conference that a, that a big Italian bank does every year and they said that this year because it was online it drew 50% uh, more participants than last year. So that doesn't necessarily mean there's, you know, so much more investment or, you know, that it's still very difficult. But I think that's at least, um, you know, it's interesting that that there's that interest and that you can you can gather more people if, if you've got it online in a way. On, you know, from the government side, uh, you know, this, uh, um, there's a, a plan which was put together uh, by um, Mr. Colau, who was a previous executive at Vodafone, um, and he's put together a whole list of what the the government um, should do to kind of, you know, foster more digitalization, innovation, how to um, capitalize on the green revolution, increase gender equality and inclusion. You know, there's a lot around education, requalification, um, incentives for reshoring. You know, su supply chains now. Companies are realizing that that maybe they need to be more diversified. Maybe Italy can benefit from that. Um, you know how to in incentivize strengthening um, uh, capitalization of Italian companies that tend to be, uh, you know, not very well capitalized. So there's there's a whole host of things that we still have to wait to see what, what the government will actually, you know, what whether they'll implement it and what what will happen with all of that. Um, but there's. You know, there's certainly a lot that needs to be done. A lot of it is what has been known needs to be done for many years. You know, just less bureaucracy, better, simpler laws, better infrastructure. Um, so there's, you know, it's all known, but it's a, it's a question of 
of actually implementing it. And let's say, and let's hope that it gets to that aspect. I guess back to Greece, Nick. Are there any opportunities in this crisis for Greece for businesses in that aspect? Um, and is the government uh, trying to think of any innovations? I know the government has really pushed to try to still implement tourism despite quarantine measures, despite everybody wearing uh, these masks in in forty degree weather and more. Um, is is there any opportunities present for Greece that businesses can bring? Well, I, I would start off by saying, you know, what, what Greece shouldn't do. And, and really, I, I think that the, the model that we had over the last few years and sort of coming out of the crisis was, uh, you know, there's cheap assets for sale, come and, come and buy them. And whether that's uh, properties, whether those are hotels, whether it was, you know, other things. It's not really a model going forward. Greece is desperate for investment. It's desperate for for cash from outside because it's been starved of that for for years. But I don't think it's sustainable to you know build our economy either around uh, tourism or around Airbnb or, or whatever it may be. And and this was really over over the last year or two as we were sort of in a recovery mode. This was where you know most of the investments was taking place. I mean, we have a small office in in the centre of Athens, and around us, every almost every single building was either becoming Airbnb uh, apartments or uh, boutique hotels. Uh, and uh, you know, it's obviously not not a sustainable model. Now, the good news is that although obviously the government is trying to encourage and rescue as much as it come, can from the tourism season this year, which is understandable because, you know, the the, the bigger the drop in, in tourism, the more support the government will have to end up uh, uh, forking out in, uh, in in the autumn. And Greece is still, despite the, whatever assistance is there from the European Union, Greece is still operating in a very tight fiscal environment, much more so than, than, than uh, virtually all its uh, Eurozone and European Union peers. The good news is that the government has already hinted at the areas that it uh, wants to try and expand in the coming years. And this was even before the coronavirus arrived. And it was very interesting to listen to Alexander talk about this sort of uh, the digital process in Italy, because it's a very similar story uh, in Greece. Uh, and this government came in saying that, it, you know, the digital policy is going to be, you know, near the top of its priorities and it's going to try and get a lot of stuff to do with the public administration online. And a lot of that has been rolled out earlier than planned because of uh, COVID-19. Now, we have to put that in perspective and say that, you know, Greece is starting from a really bad place. I mean, you know, one of the things that they've done over the last couple of months is issue a decree to ban the use of fax machines in the public sector. So, you know, you have, you have to put it, yeah, yeah, you have to put it in perspective. It's not, you know, suddenly everything's gone high tech. This is, you know, we're still in the early stages of this process, but it's really welcome because if you're about creating the conditions for investment in Greece, any kind of investments. You know, the, the two uh, issues that people will talk to you about, that investors will talk to you about are uh, public administration, that means, you know, red tape, the difficulty of navigating the legislation and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, and the other one is access to finance. And, and the second one is obviously to do with the, the, the legacy of the Greek crisis, with the Greek banks still burdened by huge 
mountain of non-performing loans, bad loans, which they're in the process of trying to get rid of, uh, get off their balance sheets. But the, the, the problem is that uh, the coronavirus crisis means that there is now the possibility of a new generation of uh, non-performing loans being uh, created. So that's something that you know will, will, will need extra care in the coming months. But just to give you an idea of other areas where the, the you know Greece has potential and the, the sort of government is already being eyeing this up and you know investors are sniffing around. One is uh, uh, green energy now. Greece is in a particular position because it has its own lignite, a form of uh, sort of soft coal. And in the 1990s, around 70% of Greece's energy was produced by uh, lignite. More recently, that dropped to 30%. Now, we you know, re recently had a look at the uh, electricity consumption uh, data f uh, for, for, for April and also to see how, uh, if there were differences in how Greece's electricity is being produced. And the, the interesting thing is that in April, this fell to 10%. Uh, yes, also energy demand fell, fell by 10%, but Greece's energy is becoming greener. Uh, and the, the government's... Uh, uh, intent is to phase out lignite completely by 2023 and to have about 60 over 60 percent of renewables by 2030 at the moment that's about four it stands at around 44 percent so there there is plenty of potential for people to come in invest in uh, greek in, in green energy and obviously greece you know has uh, you know solar power wind power there is plenty of potential there but you know the good news is that for eight days in april greece was completely lignite free and even if you go back one or two years that would have probably been unthinkable um, and finally, you know, a, a, another interesting thing that's happening is that the, the government has just submitted legislation to Parliament to set up uh, a legal framework for microfinancing to operate in Greece. Um, now, I, I remember being in, in Brussels uh, maybe 2011 and listening to how microfinancing was being used in other European countries, Belgium, France, Germany, and so on, to help really small businesses. And, and you know, the fact is in Greece, our vast majority of small and medium-sized uh, enterprises. Now, you know, I was perplexed then why microfinancing didn't exist in Greece. And now, we, you know, we're sort of 10 years down the line, it looks like it's going to be happening. And Basically, what the, 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 this new regime is going to allow is for uh, financing of up to 25,000 euros to, to small uh, businesses. So I think in that area, the microfinancing, digital financing, fintech, there is a lot of potential in Greece. And there's a lot of uh, you know, potential to you know, really uh, diversify the economy, move it away from a tourism-based model because, okay, tourism is always going to be a big part of what Greece does. But, you know, we're in a situation here where the coronavirus has reminded us of, you know, the, the precariousness of relying on this one industry for, you know, to, to keep you afloat, which is what it's done through the previous years, especially the difficult years of the crisis. And I think if we're not going to take a serious step 
to rethink our model now, then it will probably never happen. Precisely. And this is now particularly the time for change and also to learn from the experiences. And I want to take the last question to ask you both very briefly, because while we've both indicated the differences between Italy and Greece um, from in regards to how they respond to the COVID, how COVID affected them and how they're coming out of it, there are, of course, certain similarities. Of course, the both countries entered it uh, with a very fragile economy, but at the same token, they have uh, they, they, they have a, a certain outlook to each other that, that there are certain similarities that one can still try to, to learn from, or at least one can try to understand from. So very briefly, Alexandra, uh, considering Italy and Greece in that aspect, is there anything that both countries can learn from each other, given their fragile economies and unique experience, to pull through uh, post-COVID-19? Um, well, I'd say a couple of things. Like, one is, you know, I think there's a lot of Italian ingenuity and, you know, you've seen a lot of companies uh, who, ha who quickly pivoted um, to to um, sort of uh, get with the program. And, you know, you had luxury fashion companies be began to make PPE, distilleries made hand sanitizer. Um, you know, I've seen there's a company that makes graphene, is testing the possibility of making antiviral masks with graphene. Um, I saw there was a, um, a a platform set up by some young Italians to allow people to buy vouchers for cultural trips um, and experiences um, at a discount. So you buy it online um, and then you get a voucher, which is valid for 15 months. So this allows the tourism sector to get some cash um, and clients uh, to get discounts. So there's, I, you know, you, you've seen a lot of people kind of you know, moving and, and, and getting things done. And I think I think that's really positive. Um, and I think I think more broadly, like a really important thing for everyone in order to be able to come out of this crisis is more global cooperation. I think that's been severely lacking. Um, and I do hold some hope that, you know, as Nick was mentioned, the, 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 the proposed recovery fund, if that suggests some kind of, you know, greater solidarity, um, I think that could be uh, a hopeful step in the right direction so more more general cooperation more general cooperation and more solidarity and unity absolutely particularly for italy and nick briefly what about from the greek perspective is there something that both greece and italy can learn from each other uh in order to pull through post-covid yeah and I, I think i would like to pick up on that last point by alexander and i i, I think that We've seen that, you know, in, in this very sort of singular, unique moment that we're in, um, that the European Union has been forced through pressure from countries that are suffering the most to rethink its approach. And, I, OK, there is still a lot of scepticism within Europe, especially from the more so-called frugal countries about the, the recovery fund and about the idea of transfers rather than loans and so on. But the fact that this is on the table, is being discussed, is being debated, and there's sort of these chinks of light, I think is really important. And one thing that's always frustrated me and bemused me is uh, especially during the debt crisis where again the countries of the south uh, were primarily the ones affected was why these countries cannot unite forces and try to push for solutions and everyone seems to be doing it for on their own or one country seems to be distancing it from the other i mean you know when it was the the debt crisis the, the classic line was we're not greece 
which was, you know, understandable in a sense because, you know, Greece had contributed to its own, its own demise and didn't always uh, cover itself in, in, in glory, as it were. But the fundamental problems, you know, uh, low growth, high unemployment, young people uh, leaving, you know, brain drain and so on, you know, and the, and the environmental threat are all, are all common. So I, I think this is, you know, what's happened over the last few months where Germany has been forced to shift a little bit and you see attitudes are changing. Uh, the Dutch have been forced to reconsider the position. I'm, I'm not saying it's suddenly going to be a, a magical uh, breakthrough, but you see that you know, that we're sort of inching ahead. So I think that coming together to try and force some change that would benefit our countries, I think would be perhaps the single biggest takeaway. And just another very small one would be that, you know, we're not destined to fulfill the stereotypes that always, um, you know, circulate about us. The expectation, even within Greece, was that we're going to make a, a mess of this. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because of some sort of sensible and prompt uh, decisions were, were taken. And I, and I think that is also a good example for all of us going forward. Precisely. I agree wholeheartedly that the fact that there is a definite need for the solidarity, not just between Italy and Greece, but really considering from across the Mediterranean basin, because whether it's Portugal, Spain or Lebanon or Egypt or even Morocco, where I'm currently finding myself, the problems are still consistent. There are there's a unified issue. So there seems to be a Mediterranean solution needed for a Mediterranean problem. So but it's been quite intriguing hearing both your takes on this. And despite the dismalness of it all, it does seem that there is still light at the end of the tunnel. It's just that the tunnel is a little bit longer than we thought. So Nick and Alexandra, thank you very much for joining us on the Global Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Great to be here. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L dot org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of Pax on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!